Um, So tonight we are continuing our look at the early church as we uh, work our way through the book of Acts. And what I love about Acts is that it's an origin story. So it's a story of firsts and it's this window back to the people and the places and these catalytic moments uh, within the life of the first century church that have shaped the course of history as we know it. And so I find that when I know the history of something, I feel more connected to it. When I can understand its beginning or its challenges or the story of how it came to be, I'm able to appreciate it differently. I think this is in part the fascination we have with tests like Ancestry.com or 23andMe is because there's a desire within us to feel rooted in something, to feel connected to a unique history or a past that grounds us. I used to love when my Irish Catholic grandma would pull out her old photo albums and she would put on a pot of tea and then she would start telling stories. And she'd talk about the way my great-grandparents made this incredible journey from Ireland into Ellis Island in New York. And she would talk about our family crest and what it meant. And she would talk about her neighborhood in the Bronx and all of these other Irish families that moved in around them. And it always felt really sacred. It was this thing that she was really proud to share with me. And I think this is the magic of museums too. There are these pieces of the past that have been preserved for the present. And maybe you just find museums, you know, totally boring, which I guess I wouldn't blame you, but I've always found some reverence about them. And so it seems as a society and as a culture, we value this kind of storytelling of the past as important, and it's something to be protected. And our faith has a rich history too. It's rich with tradition and stories and heroism and tragedy and victory, a history that connects and grounds us to these things that we still do, like communion and worship and prayer and baptism. It connects us to this long line of believers who have come before us, who have also participated in all of these traditions. And so it's by our belief, it's by our faith that we actually belong to And we share this incredible heritage. And that's what I have come to love and appreciate so much about Acts, is that it's our living museum. It's the church's past preserved for the present. And it's the collection of people and moments and these turning points that have shaped our reality. And so when we consider it that way, we consider this book and what's in it that way, for me, it changes things. It makes it come alive a little differently. And so we're not going to go looking for formulas or a secret recipe for church structure and organization, but instead we're just hoping that by growing in our understanding, we would be sharpened and that our faith would be challenged and stretched. So we are picking up right where we left off last week. And so to catch us up really quick, Jesus has just been crucified and resurrected And he leaves his followers, his disciples, with one final command before he leaves and returns to heaven. And it's to carry on. It's to keep going. That this mission doesn't end here in Jerusalem, but they are to go on and they are to make disciples of all the nations. And so the way that Jesus has led and instructed and taught them, they are to now pass that on so that it reaches the corners of the earth. 
And these early believers, we learned they had to band together because it was common for Jews who had then accepted Jesus as Messiah to be socially ostracized or to be cut off from their families or their systems of support for abandoning this dominant way of life. And so they formed these communities where they then depended on each other for things like food and shelter and support. And they began to worship together and we see them start to pray together and they're taught by the word of God together. And so then we have the first Christian church in Jerusalem. But as we found out last week, it's not long before they start running into conflict and there's this dispute within their community. The Greek speaking believers, they brought up the way that their widows and their poor were being neglected and treated unfairly in this daily distribution of food. And so you can actually now, you can go back and watch last week's message because we're on YouTube now, which is really cool. <laughs> it's very exciting for us. Um, so if you want to know what that was all about, you can actually go back and watch that now. But to solve this issue of injustice, the apostles, they appoint seven men to kind of take over and to run this part of the church's ministry. And here is how we're introduced to the man we're going to look at tonight, Stephen. So Stephen is one of the seven men appointed for the job. And the Bible describes Stephen as a man of great faith, of great wisdom and grace, and that he is known for the presence of the Spirit in his life. And because of his responsibility in this role in the early church, we know that he was well-respected by his peers, by the other people who got to live up close to him and to really know what he was like. He was a strong leader. And we come to learn that he was uniquely gifted with words. So he was articulate and eloquent, and he had a reputation as an apologist or as someone who could debate and defend their faith. And so soon after this reorganization happens, Stephen begins to catch the attention of some people in the area. And he's full of this unexplainable power. He's able to perform these miracles and signs. And so one day, a few Jewish men, they get into a debate with him. But Stephen wasn't exactly what they were expecting. And he spoke with this confidence and wisdom and they couldn't find the flaw in his argument. And so what they wind up doing is they resort to some shadier methods to try and get rid of the problem. So we're gonna pick up, this is Acts 6, verse 11. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, well, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. And so they arrested Stephen and they brought him before the high council. Now, a few things to note about this is that this isn't a battle between the religious and the secular, like we often experience here in the West. But it's interesting that Stephen, he's not being accused and set up by the secular powers or the atheist party of his day, but it's actually the religious. It's the religious elite who wish to arrest and punish Stephen. So the hostility he's experiencing, it's coming at the hands of other God-fearing and God-believing people. And it's this kind of persecution that will characterize conflict in the East for years and years to come. And the other thing to know is that the Jewish High Council, they were dominated by this religious group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they only believed in Moses' writings. 
And so they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as their religious texts. And so they believed, they held this belief that speaking out against Moses was a crime and it was punishable, which we come to find out is exactly what these men were trying to exploit when they falsely accuse Stephen. So the lying witness said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. And at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. So here we discover what the issue is, is there's this discrepancy over the temple. And in Jewish tradition, the temple was where God resided. It's where you could access his spirit. And so if you wanted to be with God, that meant you had to go to the temple where God was. And so the threat of Jesus was that he would come to tear down this temple and change these customs, this way of communing and connecting and being with God. So the council feared change. They feared changing this system that drew lines of who could be with God and how and who couldn't. And change is exactly what Jesus brought with him. The message of Jesus and his kingdom is that now there's nothing, there's nothing that can separate God from his people. We no longer have to bring animal sacrifices because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Now God is available to all people in all times, no matter what sins or mistakes or what past we bring with us. This was very threatening to the council. And so they asked Stephen, is this true? Are these accusations about this Jesus you follow true? And from here, Stephen launches into this speech. It's about three pages long. (laughs) Most of chapter seven is just like a Cliff Notes version of the long history of Israel. But he traces for them the way that God has kept his promises to his people time and time again. That he proves faithful, that he keeps his word even though over and over and over again, God's people, the Israelites, they rebel and they reject him and they disobey and they turn away from God. But this didn't change God's mind. He doesn't abandon his promises to them, but instead he continues to come after them with grace, making a way for them to be connected. But despite this, you know, beautifully crafted argument and this mountain of proof and the fact that the Holy Spirit is very clearly alive in this guy, it says that his face is beaming, is glowing as he says this. It does not go well for Stephen. And the rest of this, I want to warn you, gets a little bit graphic. So we're going to pick up now. We're in chapter 7, verse 54. So the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed steadily, steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. He's saying, what I'm saying is true. And then they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. 
And they rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And his accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would become Paul, who we're going to talk about in a few weeks. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin, which sounds a lot like what Jesus had said about the people standing below him as he hung on a cross. And with that, he died. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, they were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so with this, Stephen becomes the first person to die for the faith, making him the first martyr of the Christian faith. And his death, it is a defining moment, is a significant turning point in the life of the early church. It sparks this great wave of persecution, right? Driving these believers out of the city, out of the city as they literally run for their lives and for their safety. And as they scatter, as they spread out, they take with them this message of Jesus. And so as they spread out, so does the good news about Jesus. And this isn't to say, like, isn't it so awesome that this man was brutally and gruesomely, you know, stoned to death so that the gospel could spread? But instead, we should pay attention to the way that the early church, it wasn't squashed and it wasn't squelched by this show of violence. But curiously, it actually strengthens the conviction of these early believers, contributing to the way the gospel begins to ripple out and it reaches these fringe cities and these remote parts of the ancient world. Now, one would think that this intense persecution, that it would have the opposite effect, right? But this is the paradox of persecution. And it is still very much alive in parts of the world where violence and torture is a reality if you confess to have faith in Jesus, we're actually discovering that Christianity is the fastest growing religion in places like China and in Iran and in parts of Africa, despite the incredible efforts to wipe it out. And it makes us pause and go, why? How is that happening? What is going on there? In Iran, the Christian church, it doesn't own any property there are no buildings for gathering. There is no formal leadership structure. There's no wealth or assets, but the gospel, it is catching on like wildfire and the church is exploding. And it's reminiscent of what Stephen had said right before he met his death about how we come to be with God, which is God doesn't require our arenas and our amphitheaters and our structures of organization and our denominations, but his spirit is moving and working and it is living in his people. And so the early church and the present church in places like China and Iran are evidence that the spirit continues to move in whispers and in hushed conversations and in veiled gatherings, and it still has the power to transform lives. Now, how are we, how are you and me to understand Stephen's death, right? In our current context, like what are we supposed to do with this story of the first martyr? 
Because the reality of our situation is that we aren't facing death or imprisonment or torture for whatever we either claim about Jesus or not. And so this isn't to say that faith isn't dangerous because there's plenty of rejection and hardship and discomfort that accompanies following Jesus. And I don't think it's helpful to minimize those experiences or to play a comparison game. But the truth is we can't draw a perfect parallel to the kind of climate that led to Stephen's death. And so then how do we meaningfully engage with this piece of the Bible? And in my own grappling with this, this is what I have found was lying underneath my own discomfort with teaching this text. And it's that martyrdom is offensive to self-centered faith. Martyrdom offends the kind of faith that revolves around us. Stephen's death, it challenges us to consider what we expect from our relationship with Jesus and what it truly means to follow him. So if I have been expecting Jesus to make my life easier, if I expect him to shield me from any danger or hardship or struggle, if I expect that doing the right thing or the bold thing, or the true thing, especially because I say I believe in Jesus, that that guarantees me safety. If I believe that, then this story of Stephen's death and the countless others of his followers being placed in direct lines of danger and even being put to death, that would be very disorienting. And if I approach the Bible as self-help, If I expect Jesus to prioritize my comfort or my happiness over over my growth or over what he is able to discern is actually best for me as the one who made me. If I treat Jesus as an ornament to my life, meaning he just decorates certain days of the week and he decorates my Instagram bio and I add him into conversations when it suits me, if I'm treating Jesus as an ornament to my life and not the source of my life, I'm very likely going to find this story about Stephen's martyrdom ridiculous and offensive. And I would be confused at the suggestion that my faith might disrupt my life. And here's, I think, where maybe we have drifted a little bit away from the truth that Jesus himself actually promised that we would experience suffering and hardship and trouble. And yes, that is different based on culture and context and climate, but the promise is the same. And it uniquely comes from aligning your life with him. He warns us, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace because in this world you will have trouble but take heart for I have overcome the world. So wherever we got this idea that a life with Jesus is pain-free or resistance-free or rejection-free or hardship-free, that idea did not come from Jesus. And there's this other moment when he is talking to his disciples and Jesus puts it this way. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, well, then you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, 
you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus was clear that our allegiance to him above anything else, it is going to cost us something. Not our salvation. He doesn't say our salvation will cost us something, right? Because his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace, salvation, those things are free. We can never earn or try to deserve them. But our discipleship, our growth, are becoming more like Jesus in every way. That is going to cost us something. We have looked at this at length, that for his disciples, we talked about how it cost them their security. They gave up their position in the family business. They, it cost them whatever plan or script was written about them for their future, for people like them. It cost them their sense of control but they also gained so much. They gained life, eternal life, abundant life. They gained purpose and adventure and freedom and influence. We talked about how for the early church, their faith cost them the social acceptance or the support of their families. And as time goes on, we see how it costs some of them their actual physical life. Now, I don't think for you and I, our faith will ever cost us our physical life. But what sticks out to me about the story of Stephen's life and his death is that his faith, it was not about what Jesus could do for him, but it was more about what became possible when Jesus was with him, when Jesus was within him and it allowed him to live in this freedom, in this confidence, He had this hope that enabled him to live boldly and courageously and to face death that way. And so I believe that Stephen really understood what it meant to give up his own way, to embrace the way of Jesus. And for him, it did. It eventually led to the ending of his actual physical life. But it inspires us I think it inspires us to ask this question, which is what did Stephen experience with Jesus that would make a person so sure and so confident and so bold and so at peace that he would give up his life for it? What kind of intimacy did Stephen have with Jesus that makes that possible for a person? And is it possible for us? What might it look like for us to live in this kind of faith that makes us bold and brave and free. And what might it cost? What might it cost you to follow Jesus where he wants to take you? And, And not just what is it going to cost, but what are you going to gain? What kind of freedom might you gain? What kind of abundance and grace might be waiting for you? And maybe, right, maybe you're still trying to sort that out, which is okay. It is okay. I don't think we need to feel shame about living in a culture, in a place, in the time of the world where we have the luxury of taking our time with Jesus, where we can explore what this means for us openly without the threat of violence or death. But then let's use that luxury wisely, 
Let's not take advantage of that, but let's take serious inventory of our expectations, of what it means to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, to go wherever he wants to take us. And has Jesus just been decoration? Has he been an ornament in our life instead of the source and the sustainer of every good thing? He really is the sustainer and the source of our life and of our faith. And how might that change how we live if we actually believed that? Kindred, would you stand and would you pray with me? God, God, thank you for who you are. God, I am humbled that you continue to do this thing where you invite us, your flawed and imperfect and broken people into the ways that you are moving and working in the world. God, I'm continually humbled by that. God, this story of one of Jesus's earliest followers. God, this story of Stephen, it challenges me and it inspires me and it makes me ask difficult questions like, what might you ask me to risk, Jesus? What does following you truly look like and what is it gonna cost me? But Jesus, you promise that when we give up our own way to embrace your way, that we gain more than we could have ever imagined. We gained all the things we truly desire. God, worth and value and belonging and purpose and freedom. So God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us individually and uniquely and specifically, God, about the ways that you are calling us into something deeper with you. And what might it look like, God, for us to live boldly and courageously unafraid. God, I pray that you would give us that clarity and that direction tonight. Jesus, I love you. I'm thankful for your sacrifice and we need you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.